My name is Christopher. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at River West. I'm just really, really excited. There's a lot of excited people here this morning. Excited to open the scriptures. If you need a Bible, you're going to want one this morning. Uh, raise your hand. The ushers will come around. Get a Bible in your hands. Over the summer, we have been taking a short break from our preaching series in Luke's Gospel to explore the spiritual disciplines together. And if you're just flying in this morning, you're joining us, you're guest, welcome. We've been learning that a spiritual discipline, we've been defining that as a God-ordained, God-empowered practice that will help you grow deeper in your relationship with Christ, in your enjoyment of Christ. And now I hope that throughout this series, you have been better equipped and inspired to actually put these things into practice, to open the scriptures, to leave the madness of your schedule and to seek out solitude and time alone with God, to worship him, to practice generosity and to share your resources with others. However, as summer winds down and fall rolls in and ramps up, I suspect that each of us sitting here today will be tempted to fall back into a hectic, hurried way of life that quite frankly doesn't leave much space or time or energy to do this whole God-seeking stuff that we've been talking about. I mean, can we be honest? This is church, right? Each day, we're constantly inundated with messages that tell us that we need to do more, to buy more, quite frankly, be more in order to be fulfilled. However, as our to-do lists and our debts stack up, we often are left feeling more unfulfilled and unsatisfied than before we even began. We frantically then seek out ways to unstuff and simplify our lives. We purchase apps. We scour Pinterest hacks and binge watch episodes of tidying up all in search of fixes to make our lives simpler. But so often, the fixes that our world offers us, they don't work. They simply weigh us down with more stuff to buy and do. Enter Jesus of Nazareth, the Savior, who once proclaimed to a tired and weary crowd, like many of us sitting here today, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. If you learn from me, take my yoke upon you, my teaching, my way of life on your life, you'll find rest for your souls. How good does that sound? You see, today, I believe that same Jesus of Nazareth is here, and he's inviting many of us, sitting here today, sipping coffee, 
to leave behind our chronically anxious, overstuffed, hurried lives for a simpler way of life that's uncluttered by the cares of this world. So today, as we continue our Seeking God series, we're going to explore the spiritual discipline of simplicity. Could you use a little bit more simplicity in your life? A few of you. No? Okay. I'll have the worship team come up here. <laughs> I think so. I think so. So we're going to do that by, by actually spending time camping on one of Christ's most profound, simple teachings in Matthew chapter 6. So if you have a Bible in front of you or on your phone, open up to Matthew's gospel, the first book in the New Testament. And we're going to jump into a sermon that Jesus taught to a tired and weary crowd. And we're going to start this morning in chapter 6 at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for he either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve... God, and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things 
will be added to you. This is God's word. Today we're going to spend the majority of our time in this rich, timeless teaching from Christ. And and so if you're taking notes today, Christ provides for us in this, this profound sermon keys to the simple life that God intends his people and his followers to enjoy. And it consists of three practical things. Honoring Christ with our stuff, honoring Christ with our time, and honoring Christ with our hearts. Honoring Christ as Lord with our stuff, our time, and our hearts. Let's start with this first challenge from Christ to honor him as Lord over our stuff. It's fascinating. A while back, I heard this bit uh, on NPR, and there was a photographer around the turn of the millennium named, named Peter Menzel that was inspired to pursue a very intriguing project that he compiled in a photo book later on called A Material World, A Global Family Portrait. He and a team of photographers took portraits of 30 statistically average families from different countries around the world. And in each photo, the family was photographed in front of their home along with all of their worldly possessions displayed outside. I have some of these photos here. I want you to take take a look at this. The first photo here is the Natomo family. They live in those two mud brick homes and they share meals together in that courtyard in a small village in Mali. Picture number two. Nalim and Namge are the two adults there. They're subsistence farmers who live with their family, their kids, in a three-story rammed earth house in a 14-house village in Bhutan, Bhutanese family. Reminds me of many families that we meet and see in Myanmar. Third photo, the Castillo family of Guadalajara, Mexico, outside of their home there. Love the smiling kid in the photo right there with all their material things as well. How about this? This is a Samoan family right here. The Laga Valles, I can't be getting that right. They had pigs, chickens, a few calves, fruit trees, vegetable gardens. They farm and fish and make crafts to support themselves. And of course, picture number five, we have an American family. This is the Skeen family of Paralyn, Texas. Rick works for a telephone comp- company, and Patty is a part-time teacher. And the truth is, I have a hard time believing that all they own is furniture from the 70s, a dog connected to a fire hydrant, and a giant Jesus Bible. So I think they're lying. I think they actually got rid of most of their stuff and gave it to Goodwill before that photo was taken. Um, You know, even though that family, that last American family, you can take that down, um, has more stuff Um, than the other families from around the world. Immediately when I saw those 
photos, an uncomfortable feeling began to well up as I imagined what it would look like if, if a photo of my family in front of our home with all of our stuff was taken. Uh, to be quite frank with you, I think we would need a drone to get it all in. You'd have to zoom out and all of our stuff, if it was on the lawn, I'm not sure that it would fit in the photo. I mean, am I the only one here that even after all of the Goodwill trips that we've done, we still have so much stuff? We have so much. And although there's nothing inherently wrong or sinful with having worldly possessions, you and I can also be easily tempted into buying a lie that our culture sells us incessantly, nonstop. And it's this, that happiness is found in accumulating as much stuff as possible. Newer stuff, better stuff, more stuff. That satisfaction is around the corner with the next Amazon purchase or the next trip to Ikea. But in the end, no amount of money or material things can deliver the satisfaction that our souls seek. After all, this is Jesus' point of his warning about earthly treasure that we read in the passage. So if we go back, look at, again, Jesus' warning in verses 19 to 21. Let's read this again. What Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, what's fascinating in this passage is how Jesus makes the connections between earthly possessions and the condition of our hearts. You see, when our significance and our security and satisfaction is based on money and material things, over time, we slowly become enslaved to our stuff. That's why Jesus, after giving us this warning about accumulating and putting our treasure in earthly things, he adds this warning in verse 24 where he, he tells us flat out, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. What Jesus is doing here is he's warning us against the ideology of materialism. Materialism. What he's not doing is he's not saying material things are bad. You see, in Jesus' day, there was many, many Jewish people that were influenced by Plato and had a very dualistic view of life and just believed simply that material things are bad and are to be shunned. The Essenes of Jesus' day retreated from society and were influenced by this Greco-Roman thought. And so they shunned 
material possessions in an effort to actually live simply and honor God, but it became also very legalistic. And this whole idea that material things are bad influenced many, many segments of Judaism in Jesus' day. But Jesus is not prescribing that. Nowhere in this passage does he say that material things are bad. In fact, later on, you'll actually see that God cares about our physical needs and providing material things for his people. But here what Jesus is doing is he's flat out saying is materialism is a God that will enslave you. And you're not meant to serve money. It'll enslave your heart. You can serve God with your money and honor him with your money, but money is a cruel taskmaster because you'll never be satisfied. You'll never be secure. And so what I've done, I I want to just define the materialism that Jesus is telling us, warning us, don't buy into this. And so materialism, it's simply just trusting money and things to be our source of significance security, and satisfaction. And what Jesus is saying, now that way, that leads to enslavement, misery, anxiety, a worry-ridden life. Shun that and pursue a life of simple faith. And faith is trusting God alone to be our source of significance, of satisfaction, and security. So in order to help us imagine, envision what a life of faith and trusting God looks like, I love this. Jesus uses two profoundly simple illustrations from nature, the birds and the flowers. Love these words. Let's read this again. Look in verse 25, after giving us this warning against materialism, look at what Jesus teaches us through this simple illustration Jesus goes on, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat and what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? Let's stop there. I I love this. Now, to be clear, when Jesus tells us not to worry about what to eat or drink or wear, he doesn't mean that these things don't matter. In fact, quite the opposite. In fact, the whole point of Jesus' illustration is that our heavenly Father cares for our needs more than we can comprehend. And so Jesus, by pointing to the way that God providentially cares for little things in creation, he points to two simple things, and he says, look at the birds. Who feeds them? Who looks after them? They don't have shopping centers or barns yet they're well-fed. Look at the flowers. Who clothes the the flowers in the Columbia River Valley during springtime and causes them to grow? Now, if my father 
cares for such simple things as these, just think of how much he cares for you. You know, this week, one of my most precious books is actually just a collection of sermons from Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer. And he preached on, on this passage. And, and one of my favorite illustrations of, of, of all time, I just had to share this, um, just because it, it works on, on my own heart. I wanted to share these words uh, with you. Luther says this. He says, look at what else these little birds do. Their life is completely unconcerned, and they wait for their food solely from the hands of God. Sometimes people cage them up to hear them sing. Then they get their food in abundance, and they ought to think, now I have plenty. I do not have to be concerned about where my food is coming from. Now I have a rich master, and my barns are full. But they do not do this. He is happier in the woods than cooped up in a cage where he has to be taken care of constantly and where he rarely gets along well or even stays alive. It's as if he were saying, I prefer to be in the Lord's kitchen. He has made heaven and earth and he himself is the cook and the host. Every day he feeds and nourishes innumerable little birds out of his hand. He does, not, he does not have merely a full bag of grain, but heaven and earth. That is so good. <laughs> I love that. Listen, friends. What Jesus is doing in this passage is he's inviting us to leave behind our anxious, worry-ridden pursuit of earthly things, which cage us up and rob us strip us of contentment and the ability to enjoy the gifts God has given. And Jesus is saying, ditch that, that buy more life. Where where you're always looking for satisfaction around the corner for a way of life that rests in my loving providence and provision and care. I'm reminded of the words of James 1.17, where he says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down to us from a father of lights in whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. God is good all the time. And if he cares for the little birds and the flowers, just think, friends, of how much he cares for you and I. And if we could just begin to see everything that we have for what it is, a generous gift from a father above who loves us more than we can ever comprehend, here's what will happen. We will find that we spend far less time worrying about our stuff or hoarding it to ourselves. Instead, we will be set free to enjoy the things that we've been given, and we'll be liberated to share our resources with others. Because everything that we have, from our food and clothes to our time, our abilities, our treasure, was never really ours to begin with, but rather just gifts on loan from our Heavenly Father.
Amen? Amen. Which brings us to the next key that Jesus gives us to a simpler way of life that God intends for us to enjoy and to exhibit to the world. And it's honoring the Lord Jesus with our time. With our time. Honoring Christ as Lord with our stuff leads us inevitably to this challenge to honor the Lord Jesus with our time. Now, in the passage that we read, you might have noticed that there's this seemingly offhand comment sandwiched between the birds and the flowers where Christ asks, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life. Of all the verses in the New Testament, this one may be the most fitting epitaph of our times. For all of our anxious striving to cram more into our days, all our rushing from one thing to the next, we often feel unfulfilled and hollow in our hectic lives. I mean, is it just me or have you ever had days where your head hits the pillow and you almost curl into a fetal position as you realize that there's not nearly enough hours in the day to accomplish everything that needs to be done? Anyone ever had that before? That feeling? We are so busy. You are so busy. And the reason I can say that with authority is I've been doing an unofficial census around here on Sunday mornings for a long time. Out in the foyer over the last few weeks, I've been going around, just making small talk and asking people, how's your summer been? Any guesses? as to the number one response that people, busy. You know, I actually, that word, it, it's changed. That, that's in the pull position. That's the number one word I hear around here. And out there is the word busy. It used to be the word fine. I'm fine. When you'd lie through your teeth at church, you know, and the pastor's like, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm fine. I am. I am great, Pastor. And now you say, I'm busy. I'm busy. We're all busy. Our pastors, we're busy. Pastor, I know you're busy. We, we say it almost as if it means nothing at all. I recently ran across an Oxford study on busyness. There's studies for everything, you know, these days. The authors, they actually make a compelling claim, though, that a busy and overworked lifestyle versus a simple lifestyle of work, leisure, and rest has become, and this is their words, an aspirational status symbol in American culture. In other words, the busier that you look, the more important that you appear to others. And now, confession's good for the soul. Here's here's a confession. I'm an overachiever. I actually thrive off of the challenge to do as many things as possible from sunup to sundown. 
I'm ADD for Jesus, and, and I love it. I love my life. My life is incredibly busy by all measures. And I can honestly say, I used to say that proudly. But between you and I, busyness has been one of the greatest obstacles to my Christian maturity and relationship with Christ over the years. Just chronic busyness. If left unchecked, my hectic schedule becomes stuffed with so many things, including many good things, very good things. Some might say God things, very godly things. That when it's all said and done, and after all my time is pledged out, there's very little time and energy left for seeking God, for enjoying time in prayer, solitude, meditating on his word. Now, I know that admission might sound strange coming from a pastor, but the truth is, and I think this applies to us all, unless I prioritize time with God in my daily schedule, it gets spent on other things. However, here's what's beautiful, is that Christ's teaching once again provides a remedy to our hectic, overstuffed lives. And here's how the remedy comes. In verses 31 to 33, Christ does something brilliant. What he does is he, put, he puts side by side two ways of living life and seeking after things, side by side. Look at what Christ does. I, I love this. In verse 31, he says this. He says, therefore, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And then he talks about a different way of seeking. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things that you seek after and you spend your time on, they'll actually be added unto you. Now, for the visual learners among us, I drew a picture. It's not a great picture, but it's a picture. I don't know if you can see that. I have no idea. But here's what Jesus is talking about in verses 31 to 32. It's a pagan way of life where you seek after things in order to find your sense of satisfaction, security, and significance or social status. And Jesus says that's how the Gentiles or the pagans live. They seek, seek after things to get these things that God ultimately knows that you need. But then Jesus contrasts that with a different way of seeking. And he says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things that you seek after, significance, security, satisfaction, meaning, they'll be added unto you. The point is about priorities. We spend our time on the things that we treasure most. Where your treasure is, there your time will follow. So think about it. Think about all the things that compete for your time, your attention, the supercomputer in your pocket, your schedule, your job, your responsibilities, all of it. Can I ask you just a heart-to-heart -heart question as your pastor? 
What comes first in your life? Does God really come first? Do you honor him with your, your time? Does he get the lion's share of your, your time, your attention, your focus? You know, in our distracted digital age, you know what your most precious commodity really is? Time. Your, your focus. And everything in our crazy, neurotic world is competing for it. Companies pay ads on Google to inundate your, your inbox and your phone buzzes and everyone wants your attention. You know what? We serve a jealous God that wants it too. He wants your time, not just your treasure and your stuff. So Jesus says, if you seek God first, instead of like the Gentiles, seeking after all these things, for satisfaction, security, significance. You'll not only get God, but you'll get all those things thrown in as well. As always, and with all the spiritual disciplines, Jesus is our man. And he's our model of what it looks like to live a life that honors God with our time. So think about this. Jesus was busy by anyone's standards. Jesus was a busy man. However, even in some of his busiest moments where the crowds are pressing in and everyone wants something from Jesus, Jesus prioritized time with his heavenly father. We see that. I just want to show you briefly one instance that we looked at in this series. I love this story. In Mark chapter 1, after staying up all night healing people, in a village, as his ministry is gaining momentum, we see Jesus actually leaving behind the crowds and seeking out time with his heavenly father in Mark chapter 1, verse 35 to 38. Look at this. This description of Jesus here. Rising early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let's go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. I love this picture of Jesus. <laughs> Peter's rebuking him, saying, Jesus, where are you? There, there's people to heal. There's, there's so much stuff to do. And Jesus, we see him leaving all of that behind because he treasures his time with his father. We spend time on the things that we treasure most. And here's a promise, friends. When it comes to seeking God, the more time that we spend in his presence, in his word, in prayer, the more our hearts will learn to treasure Jesus and the gospel above all of the rusty, moth-eaten trinkets and treasures that the world constantly sells us that don't really satisfy. You'll learn to treasure the gospel and Jesus. So you might be sitting here today thinking, okay, preacher, I get it. I have a lot of stuff and I'm really busy. So how do I actually practice this whole simplicity thing? 
here's how to do this. Simplicity isn't about rigid rules or restrictions. It's a disposition of heart, an inward attitude that seeks to honor Christ as Lord above all the things that compete for our time, our attention, our affection. So I want to give you today, as we land our time together, just seven practical things to help you honor Christ as Lord of your life through simplicity. Seven simple things you can do. First and foremost, recognize and name the things that you treasure and seek more than God. Have the courage to put a name to the things that you seek that come first before God. It's so easy to lose focus, to lose our priorities in pursuit of good things. Our job, our family, our friendships, they can easily crowd out our time to seek first the kingdom of God, to open his word, to hear from him. Recognize those things that are competing and crowding out time to seek God and name them. Secondly, reorder your daily routine by prioritizing time to seek God first before pursuing other things. So a simple rule of life in my life is the device stays off. The device stays off. No news, nothing. Before seeking God, prioritizing and guarding that time before life comes in and starts asking for our attention, seek him first. Put him first in your life. Thirdly, develop a habit of giving things away. Last week, Guy preached an incredible message just on generosity and the freedom and the contentment that comes with sharing our things with those that need stuff. So develop a habit of practicing generosity and sharing your resources with others. Honestly, if you find that you're becoming too attached to some possession, prayerfully consider giving it away to somebody that might enjoy it or need it. Number four, this is a big one. Define what's enough instead of allowing the world to define it for you. Define what's enough. What's enough money? What's enough stuff? What's enough activity in your schedule? If you don't define what enough is, I can guarantee you our world will define enough for you and the line will always move. So you'll be like one of those greyhound dogs chasing after that rabbit on a stick. You'll never catch up. You'll never do enough. You'll never spend enough. You'll never have enough vacations. It'll never, ever, ever be enough. So define what enough looks like. In your budget, in your time, in your calendar, define enough. Number five, resist the pressure to overstuff your schedule with too many activities and commitments. I get this wrong all the time. All the time. 
You know, in a few Sundays, there's going to be Connect Sunday. We live in such disconnected times that unless I prioritize time to connect with the community of Jesus and actually omit things from my schedule, there's not room for meaningful friendships, relationships, connections in my life unless I prioritize that space and guard it. Parents, your kids do not have to be involved in every single activity under the sun. They don't. Busyness is not next to godliness in the Bible. That verse is not in the Bible. Just because you're busy does not mean that you'll actually be formed into a Christ follower that's fulfilled. And so resist that pressure when the world tells you to sign up for more, okay? Number six, make a running list of the gifts God has given you that you're grateful for. This might be something simple that you could actually do in the mornings before your day begins is to practice gratitude and just keep a running list of the gifts of grace, of the air conditioning in your home, of the wildflowers, of a sunset, but a great walk and a discussion with a friend. Make a list of the small gifts and the great gifts that God has given you. And lastly, when anxieties and worries arise, and they will, meditate on Matthew 6. These would be great words to commit to heart. Because as you do, when the cares of this life crowd in, you'll be able to remind your heart that you have a Father in heaven that cares for you. And listen, friends, if the God who created Crater Lake and sustains everything in the Columbia River cares for you, why spend all your waking hours worrying about your stuff and your life? And these words will drive the gospel deeper into your heart because you'll be reminded of how much your father loves and cares for you. That God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus to come and live among us. And because Christ treasured you, he gave up everything, was stripped of everything, even his very clothes, all his material possessions were stripped from him as he hung on a Roman cross for you to make you his treasure. It's what we call the gospel, the good news of salvation. And this morning, what we're going to do is in response, we're going to sing with the birds out there that sing praises to the Lord. We're going to sing our praises to our God, our Father who cares for us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up here. This morning, we're going to sing a simple refrain in a song where we say, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. If that is the cry of your heart this morning, in a moment, the communion table is going 
to be opened, and we're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate the gospel by receiving the bread and the cup. So as this next song plays, I just want to invite you, if you've made that decision, to trust Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Go, take the bread, take the cup, hold on to those elements, and I'm going to come back up and lead us in a prayer this morning. If you're sitting here and this is the first time that you ever have heard these words and something within your heart is stirring you saying, I'm so tired of rushing through life. And your heart, you're feeling drawn into this love that is described in Matthew 6. Perhaps for the first time ever, today's the day where you could place your faith in Christ and become a Christ follower. Boy, that would be an unbelievable thing to celebrate here this morning. If that's you, go to the table, hold on to the bread, hold on to the cup, and this might be an opportunity for you to experience the gift of salvation this morning. Let's sing, let's worship the Lord, friends. And as you feel inspired, go to the table, take those elements, hold on to them.